so much for leading us this morning to the call to worship. The songs were wonderful reminders pointing us to Jesus right now. Um, I think there's one line in particular that fits so well with, I think, what we're trying to do here right now and what we're doing today. So um, I'm excited. Uh, have you ever done something where you've gone and you thought you've gone down your entire checklist and feels like maybe you might have missed something? Well, I did that this morning because we're not in Second Samuel 7. That was last week. So I updated the slideshow and uh, left off the title slide. So today we're actually going to be looking at a passage in Jeremiah 31. So please open up your Bibles with me as we read just a, a short passage today that we're going to be digging into to point us to Jesus this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 660. You can just open that up, and uh, we're going to read God's Word together. I did update the rest of the slides, so that's good news. I didn't miss those. You guys love me, though, so it's okay, right? Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. As we worship today and we draw our attention to this passage in Jeremiah, in the heart of this collection of writing and sermons from this prophet, uh, named Jeremiah, who came to Israel uh, as Babylon was about to come in and destroy this southern kingdom of Judah. We have recorded for us here in chapter 31, these three verses, another promise from God to His people. And this has been the theme for us the last uh, four weeks as we've gone through this time of Advent. We've gone through these promises that God has made throughout the Old Testament that point us ultimately to Jesus. They point us um, with these promises to the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. We see these ways as we walk through these texts these last four weeks in the way in which they've been fulfilled in Jesus, but how there are still ways in which there are things to come still, right? And that's what we want to do here today. We want to build that sense of anticipation. There was a line from one of the songs we just sang in Oh Holy Night. It says, A thrill of hope the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And that is what we have before us today in the words of the prophet Jeremiah. We have a picture of a new and glorious morning that is to come, that came in Jesus with a future fulfillment still to come to. Last week, I know I said it, that uh, I asked the kids what the best part of celebrating Christmas was. And what was the answer, of course, every kid gives? Yeah, presents, right? It's the gifts. That's, that's the exciting thing about Christmas. Getting to that point where you get to rip open those packages and see what the gift is 
that you're receiving from your, from your parents, right? And I still want to make the argument that even though gifts take top billing in the morning, right, for, for the kids to rip those open and receive their gifts, I don't think we can underestimate the time leading up to the day and the anticipation that is built as we walk through the month of December that leads to this excitement for these gifts being greater than it otherwise would, right? Everybody's excited about their birthday. You get gifts on your birthday. But it's different at Christmas, right? It's different. It's not the same, is it? Why? And think about it. We've got this music on the radio that's different, right? We see all these decorations and lights and all these sights and smells in the house that are different. We see these gifts going under the tree, waiting there, wrapped, just waiting to be ripped open and received, right? We have this time where we sit down and we read through the Bible together and we read through God's story and all of history, this time of Advent, pointing us to Jesus. We do these things at this time of year that stand out as different and look different. And it builds this sense of excitement. It builds a sense of anticipation in us. And this is what we're doing in the text this month, these last four weeks. We're building this sense of excitement and anticipation. We're building a thrill of hope for a weary world to rejoice. This is what we're doing in Jeremiah 31 today. We are looking at God's Word to see these promises that God has made, to try to see the anticipation and the longing that God's people had. And this was not a short period of time. This was over the course of thousands of years. God's people waited for God to fulfill this promise to bring this Messiah who would save His people. We struggle to wait 25 days to get our gifts at Christmas, right? Imagine waiting a thousand years for this promise to be fulfilled from the time of David, right? These last three weeks, we've done a bit of biblical theology. And that is, we've been looking through the Bible to see the way God has woven His story together throughout all of human history, throughout the entirety of this book that we have here. And we've used this time to build that sense of anticipation for this celebration of Jesus coming into the world and also for His return. We've walked through the Scripture this Advent season. We saw in Genesis 3, in the garden, immediately after man's rebellion against God, God comes into the garden and He makes a promise right there that one day an offspring would come from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. We saw uh, the week after in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that out of him would be a great nation. And this nation that God would raise up that comes from Abraham would be a blessing to the, all the nations of the earth. And last week we were in 2 Samuel 7, and we saw God promising to David that he would make David a house, and he would raise up David's offspring, and he would establish David's throne, and it would last forever. And that one from the family line of David would be sitting on it as king. I think this is the beauty of what we have in the Bible. It's that we read these promises and we see every one of them fulfilled. Every one of them fulfilled in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's crushed the head of the serpent through His death on the cross. He is the blessing to the nations from the line of Abraham. He's the descendant of David who will sit on His throne that God has established forever. And in this final week of Advent, as we reflect on this week of love, we see God's love. And we see it in this passage in Jeremiah where God promises to establish a new covenant with His people. 
This is the main idea for us today as we see this passage that God has made a promise to establish a new covenant. Why does God promise this new covenant exactly? What has happened with the covenant that that He's made with Israel? Has God's promise to Israel failed? As we're about to see, God is not the one who has failed with His promises. It is Israel Israel, who has made this covenant with God to be His people, to obey Him, to worship Him alone, that has failed and has broken their word and has turned their back on the God who has worked throughout history to make them a nation, to save them from their enemies, to give them a home and a land, a land that He said was going to be flowing with milk and honey. God was intending to bless Israel. And ultimately, the greatest lesson of all God was making Israel a people for Himself. They were His people. This God who displayed such great kindness to these people sees them throughout their history continually break their promises to Him, continuing to do what is evil in His sight, continuing to chase after other gods, continuing to revel in their sin. Now here in Jeremiah we see God promising this new covenant that will be different from the first. And in this we see God's faithfulness to His promises because even though Israel has failed to uphold its end of the deal, they failed to uphold their end of the covenant that they promised to make, God is still working in human history to fulfill all that He has said will come to pass. And in doing so, we see God working not to forsake His people forever, not to sit there and cast off Israel and say, I'm done with you forever, but He's working through this new covenant to draw them back to Himself, to draw all people back to Himself. God is working to keep His promises, to forgive sin, and doing so, drawing a new people into Himself, drawing us near to Himself. So we dropped in this passage this morning in the middle of a collection of writings Like I said, from the prophet Jeremiah, his name's on the book. It's his writings and his sermons that have been collected throughout his ministry. Jeremiah's ministry as a prophet was one that saw him crying out to Israel to see them repent before God would bring his judgment upon the nation for the worship of false gods and for the sin that follows. Jeremiah's ministry to Israel began during the years of a king named Josiah, At this time, Israel had been split in two. The ten tribes of of Israel into a northern kingdom. And this northern kingdom had already, at this point when Jeremiah is in the middle of his ministry, had been destroyed by Assyria. And the peoples had been taken off into captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah was what remained of Israel. And even though the southern kingdom lasted longer than the northern kingdom did, they weren't without their problems. The line of kings to take the throne after David's son Solomon in the northern kingdom of Israel did nothing but continue to do wrong in the sight of the Lord, continue to do nothing but to lead the people astray and away from their God. And the kings in the southern kingdom saw some ups and downs. Some of the kings doing what was right in the sight of the Lord and others doing what was evil. Jeremiah's journey begins with King Josiah. King Josiah is described as the last king in Judah who is regarded as doing what is right before the Lord. 
This is the last one, and it's all downhill from here. We see this small glimpse of Josiah and his life in 2 Kings. Here, after taking the throne and ordering the temple to be repaired, the high priest comes back to King Josiah with the book of the law that they found in the temple. And 2 Kings says this, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakim the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. This is the king who's on the throne in Judah when Jeremiah comes on the scene. A king who finds the book of the law and his desire is to see Judah turn from their sin, to turn from all the things they failed to uphold when it comes to their end of the covenant. And I think King Josiah's words in verse 13 of 2 Kings 22 here are indicative of the place and the situation that the prophet Jeremiah finds himself in. Jeremiah's life and ministry were hard. His call was to cry out to the people, to call them to repent, to call them to turn back to the Lord. And his cries constantly fell on deaf ears. By the account of the book with his name on it, there were really only two men who ever came to follow Jeremiah to turn. Two men during this entire ministry that spanned 40 years who heard Jeremiah cry out and turn from their sin to follow him to go back to the Lord. This time in Israel, this time in Judah, is seeing people far from God. is seeing a new king come and admitting, we failed, Lord. We had a covenant with you that we promised to keep. We haven't done it. Unfortunately, this is a time of tribulation in the life of Israel. King Josiah was the final one to come to the throne to do what was right in the sight of the Lord and to call the people back to the Lord. But that time was going to be short. And God had other plans for Judah. Ten tribes of Israel had been conquered already in the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. And they'd been taken off and lost. They were no more. And now Judah... Judah is at the precipice of this same kind of indignation, about to be conquered by the Babylonians, about to be taken from the land God had given them as He promised to their fathers. King Josiah saw this is where Judah was and where the remaining people of Israel were at. 
And he saw in these verses we read just a minute ago that the people of Israel had turned from God, that they had not kept the promise they made to God when they covenanted with him to be his people and obey his law. And this time that was coming for Israel was going to be a time of punishment. And this punishment was according to the promises that they made. This is going to be according to the covenant that they failed to keep. One in which they knew would bring curses if they failed to obey the way they said they would. This time Jeremiah finds himself as not very hopeful to be in the land. This is the land of promise. This is that land flowing with milk and honey. This was supposed to be a blessing and the people were supposed to be thriving and they were supposed to be worshiping God who had saved them, who had delivered them from Egypt, who had delivered this land of Canaan into their hands as an, as an inheritance of them. But this group of people now, like countless of generations, many times before for hundreds of years of Israel, these people turned from God and they chased after false gods. And they did evil and wicked deeds like their pagan neighbors. This is not a time of hope in Judah right now when Jeremiah is on the streets calling them to repent. But even in the midst of this dark place, even in the midst of a situation that seems completely and utterly hopeless with God's good and just judgment about to fall on Judah, in the midst of this place and situation, we see Jeremiah give this beautiful promise to Israel. In this hour, at the culmination of their sin against Yahweh, in this time where His judgment is about to be poured out on them, rightly so, at this time when it looks like God's promise is going to be found void, and this people of Israel are going to be no more forever. Right now, at this time in Jeremiah's life, the Babylonians are at the door, ready to rip Jerusalem apart, to tear it down. They've already come in. The king now, in chapter 31, comes long after Josiah. And this is the final king of Judah. And this is a king that the Babylonians propped up and installed. And they said, you go ahead and run the place for us. We'll just collect the taxes, right? But he decided to rebel against the Babylonians. So the Babylonians were coming back. They're going to put an end to Jerusalem once and for all. And it's not just the Babylonians. God is using them to bring judgment upon Israel. They're coming back to destroy the place, to send the Jews, to send Israel, that remnant of Israel, off forever to be lost. In the middle of this darkest hour for Israel. When God has turned His back on His nation for their faithlessness and their turning from Him. In the middle of this time where He's using this army of Babylon to bring judgment onto this unrepentant nation. It's here in chapter 31, verse 31. God has Jeremiah declare that the promise He made will not fail to be kept. Israel has failed to keep their promises. God will punish their sin and their idolatry, but God will not fail to keep His promises. We see this happen a couple times in Jeremiah. If we look back at Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 10, Jeremiah said this to the people, 
For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. You will seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God tells Israel he's going to keep his promises. Even right here is the threat of being taken into captivity in Babylon is at their gates. God tells them, you're going to have 70 years of sojourning. But Israel, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back to this place. Back to worship me here where I put you right now. And when I do, you're going to seek me and you're going to find me. And I'll fulfill my promises that I have made. At the precipice of what looks like to be their destruction, God tells Jeremiah to bring the people of Israel a message of hope for the future. And not only does God promise that Israel will be brought back to the land and that that promise that He made to give that land to them in inheritance will not be void, but we have an even greater message of hope for the people. We skip ahead a little bit more to Jeremiah 31. And we find our passage here today, this passage where God promises a new covenant between God and His people. Israel has failed time after time across hundreds of years to keep its end of the covenant that was made between them and Yahweh. But God has not forsaken His promises. He has not forsaken His promises in the garden to send an offspring from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. He has not forsaken the promise to Abraham that in Him all the families on earth will be blessed. He has not forsaken the promise to David that David's house would be raised up on a throne that would be established forever. These promises are coming to fulfillment, God says. This is this new covenant that I'm bringing about. You're going to see not only a return to the land, you're going to see even greater things, Israel. You'll come back to the land, but I'm going to bring something else. I'm going to bring a new covenant to you. Let's look back at Jeremiah 31 and read that again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. As Israel faces what they probably think is their final judgment and their failure to see God's promise, to be His people fulfilled, God still gives them a promise of this new covenant. This time where He says, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to draw you nearer to Me than you've ever been before. This covenant is going to be different from the first. The first covenant delivered to Moses and given to the people of Israel was written on scrolls and on tablets. And it existed for people to see and to read and to meditate on and to take and to try to put into practice as they took it in from outside themselves to put it into themselves, right? 
This first covenant with Israel had God revealing Himself to them. And the law had been given to them for instruction in righteousness and how to live before God. But with our human nature being what it is, people don't like to obey rules. I'm sure if we all looked around at life, we'd see it, and we could probably count it in different measures. And we see sometimes people love to see how far they can bend rules. We see people love to see how they can break rules without getting caught. And sometimes people just don't care, and they're happy to rebel. I think ultimately, oftentimes, when it comes to doing what is good under the law, sometimes we just don't have the capacity to restrain ourselves. If you don't agree with me on that, let me ask you this one question. How fast did you drive here today? I mean, granted, it may not be a great day because road conditions, right? <laughs> we may have a room full of speed limit obedient people in here today, right? I know that's such a silly, simple example, but for me, I always seem to know better on how fast I should be going than what the signs tell me to do, right? For whatever reason, I just can't seem to act with enough patience to be able to be at the point where 24-7, every time I'm on the road, I am satisfied sticking to that number that's on that speed limit sign. And it may only be a mile or two over the limit, but my mind and my flesh war against what my brain and my eyes see and tell me is right. I know it's right. I don't drive crazy. But I don't obey. I think that's our nature in a nutshell. That is who we are as humans. We know it's right. We want to be the masters of our own destiny. We want no one to tell us what we can and can't do. We're going to decide that for ourselves, aren't we? I think this is right now why we see God promising this new covenant. Because while God has given us instruction to do what is right in His sight, ultimately, from the law, we were showed that we drastically lacked a critical component to actually be able to faithfully follow and obey what God has commanded. I think we see the prophet Ezekiel expound upon this missing element nicely in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel is a prophet who comes onto the scene in Judah around the time when Jeremiah's life is coming to an end. And he speaks of this missing piece of the puzzle we're talking about right now in chapter 36. He says, starting in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart." and a new spirit, and I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The problem, the problem is not with the law. The problem ultimately lies within our own hearts. Ezekiel tells us this. We need a new heart. We have hearts of stone, not hearts of flesh. We have hearts that are dead, that don't want to hear what God has to say, that don't want to listen and obey. Jeremiah, in chapter 17, verse 9, I think, describes the human heart like this, where he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That key missing ingredient is a heart that is alive and beating in rhythm with the Spirit of God. We have these hearts of stone that are desperately sick, that seek after all manner of things we think are going to satisfy a longing that never, ever is filled. The hamster wheel, right? You jump on and you run, and there's no stopping, there's no end, there's no real benefit to it. We chase after everything we think is going to bring us joy, everything that's going to bring us peace, and all it ever causes is chaos in our lives. There's no peace. We always need more. This new covenant God promises to His people, He says, is not like the first. This covenant solves the problem that has been exposed to us. That our strength to do what is right and good and pure falls short of God's standard every time. And what we need isn't just the law to restrain us. We need God to do heart surgery. We need God to fix the sick, stony heart and replace it with one that beats and is made of flesh, one that is alive and beating in tune with the Spirit of our Lord. This new covenant is going to be about, is not going to be about outward external observances, which so often are only done merely to please others around us or to make us feel uh, good about ourselves, but ultimately have no real desire to do what is right. It's just about us feeling better about our current situation. This new covenant, no, it's going to be about God writing His law on our hearts so that these new hearts we have actually desire to do what's right. And they grieve when we know we haven't done right. They grieve when we know we've done what's wrong, when we've sinned against God. And beyond that, they repent and they seek to reconcile when they've sinned. This new covenant is not about putting on a face of external observances of God's law. The new covenant is about being conformed to the will of God. It's about being, as Romans 8 says, conformed to the image of Jesus, God's Son. This, of course, is not meant to be that we're going to be just like Jesus in all His ways, right? This doesn't mean we're sharing uh, the same substance as God. We're not being turned into God's. We're not going to be able to work hard enough to become a God one day, right? These are all things that are examples of heresies that exist out in the world. No, it's about revealing God's glory to us in such a way that we couldn't see before, 
And in this revelation of the perfection and the grace and the justice and the wrath and the wisdom and the mercy and the perfection of God, it's in this revelation that we strive to be more like Him. Not to be Him, not to elevate ourselves above Him, but to be like Him. Like the Bible says, be perfect, for your Father in heaven is per- or like your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the goal of these heart. Not just to keep a checklist of laws that we've broken, not just to sit there and make ourselves feel better about ourselves when we've done something good in a day. It is about to seek after God in such a way that we see His heart expressed in our lives. And all of that in this new covenant. We see it ushered in ultimately by Jesus. Jesus who we celebrate right now, who as we walk through this time of Advent, we get excited and we have this sense of anticipation building as we think about how all those people felt in Israel for thousands of years looking forward to the Messiah, looking forward to this new covenant coming to be. We look to Jesus now who's coming again. And we celebrate this now. We celebrate this new, we celebrate Jesus, what he's done, coming into the world, God in flesh, to take on sins, to die for his people, to make them right before a holy and just God, and to establish this new covenant where we will have hearts, not a stone, but hearts of flesh, with God's law written on him, so we would strive to be like our perfect and holy Father. Jesus ushers in this new covenant. We see that in Luke 22, where it says um, Jesus at the table, prior to his going to the cross, is with his disciples, and it says he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, or broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He is the one in whom we see the promises of God that are made to Israel fulfilled. Acts 13 tells us this. It's in Jesus we see this image of the invisible God. We see this perfect love. We see what this holiness looks like in the life of a man. Because he's not just a man. He's fully God and fully man. And we see this example of what it looks like as He walked the earth. This new covenant that has been inaugurated is not promised by God to give us a law to live under. He's already given us that. This new covenant that God has given us, He's given to give us life. He's given us this new covenant so that we would deny ourselves of our own worldly desires and exchange it with a true desire to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And through the promise of a new covenant, through this relationship with Jesus where we see these things come to be in our own lives, God is ultimately promising to bring His people closer and closer to Himself. Through this heart transplant, 
through His Spirit dwelling in us, through His law being written on our hearts. These are the things written of to Israel long before Jesus was born in the flesh. But they are the things that we've seen have been, been fulfilled and given to us in Christ. And these are things still today that we see being fulfilled. And we know ultimately there is a final reality still to come when Jesus will come again. And we will see Him face to face on that throne that has been established forever for David. In this new covenant, we see God demonstrate love for His people. We see that through the mercy that He offers for, as He forgives sin. This is a promise of the new covenant in verse 34. That God will forgive iniquity and remember sin no more. Remember when I said that these promises, this new covenant was ushered in by Jesus and all these promises of the Old Testament, Acts 13 tells us, have been fulfilled in Him. Think about what forgiveness of sin required under the Mosaic Law. It was a sacrifice. There was blood that had to be spilled. There was a substitute that had to be made. And this is exactly what we see in Jesus. I think 1 John 4 gives us a beautiful picture of how we see these elements of the promise of the new covenant, covenant come to life in the person and the work of Jesus. Will you turn there with me? 1 John 4, toward the end of your Bible. Let's read this together. First John 4, and we're going to read verses, uh, starting verse 7. The uh, <clears throat> disciple John writes this, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, oh, I'm in two, I'm sorry. That's not four. There we go, there's four. All right. Here's the correct passage. I wanted us to read together. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. I think in this short passage from 1 John 4, we see the promises of the new covenant taking effect in the lives of God's people. This love that God has demonstrated through His Son this love that God has shown us this is the foundation I think of this new covenant it says in Romans that love is 
the fulfillment of the law. It's this love that John talks about here in 1 John, where we see this new covenant at work in our lives. We see this new covenant at work in the lives of the community of believers. We see this love at work in the world. God is writing His law on our hearts. I think 1 John shows us that picture in a beautiful, beautiful way. I think this passage for us today, these three short verses that we looked at, and this promise of the new covenant, as we walk through sort of the quick history of Israel, how they got where they were, why God's promised in this new covenant. I think we have to look at that and ask us, why, why are we looking at this? What's, what's relevant for us today here, right? It's what we always have to ask ourselves when we come to the Scripture. What does it mean for us here to be living in light of this new covenant? What does it mean for us to, to live and show this love that God has demonstrated to the world through His Son, Jesus? Right? Jesus, who comes into the world to die as a sacrifice, once and for all time, to offer forgiveness of sin, to offer payment of our debt before God on our behalf. And with this great depth of how much we've been forgiven, with the burden of obedience to the law to be made right with God, lifted off of our shoulders in Christ, do we demonstrate this love of God, which shows, as 1 John says, that God abides in us? I think this is the challenge of the application for us in a passage like this, right? Because we see it. We see this new covenant. We see the promises. We've walked through the Bible and we've seen God working throughout history. And we've seen Him now in um, today in the life of Jesus. We see how He has um, made this promise living and active in our own lives. I think it's a challenging application for us. Because we have to look in the mirror and we have to ask, do I see Jesus? Did I treat my wife the way that I should have? According to His grace and mercy, did I show His love abiding in me in that way? We have to look in the mirror and we have to say, is this new covenant that God has ushered in through His Son living and active in my life today? Or am I just a hypocrite? Am I saying one thing with my mouth and doing something else with the way I live? This is a challenging application for us today because this is a call in the application here to abandon what the world says is right, to abandon the ways of the world, to abandon our own desires. This is the call that Jesus gave us to deny self, take up our cross, and follow Him. I know this isn't you know, five easy steps that we can take and apply to our lives today, right? When we walk out the door. But this is our greatest need. We need to be forgiven and we need to be made right before the Lord. And right now, as we gather here, week before Christmas, the week before we remember the day that God left heaven and took on flesh, lived a perfect life, sinless life, he died to call us to himself, to make us his brothers. That's the time for us to look in the mirror today, to examine our own hearts and our own lives. 
I think for us to take a look at 1 John 4 and to see this challenging picture of love being manifest in our own lives. It's a beautiful thing too, thinking about this week of Advent. This Advent was the week of love, right? This is the week of love where we remember that God has shown His love for us. Well, we were yet still sinners. Christ died for us. And He did this to bring in this new covenant. To write His law on our hearts. To redeem us. To forgive us. This is why we celebrate. This is a call for us today as we finish right now. To look to Christ and to feel that sense of anticipation. That sense of anticipation Judah would have felt seeing this promise in the midst of their darkest hour. This promise that a new covenant was coming, that God was not going to forsake them or abandon them, but He was coming to rescue them. And that His promises never returned void. That's something to get excited about. That's something for us to look at today and to be excited about. That is something for us to celebrate today as we get ready to celebrate the birth of Christ this week. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now, Lord, and we just praise your name. Father, your word is beautiful. And we thank you, Lord, that we see all throughout it your promises never return void. Father, you're amazing. The promise, Lord, that you give us of this new covenant, God, that you are not going to abandon sinful people to just be destroyed forever because of their own sin, Lord. But you promise us new hearts. You promise us your law being written on our hearts. You promise us this great love with which you've shown us to be present and active and live in our own lives, Father. So God, I pray that we just revel in this new covenant, Lord, that you've established. Let us celebrate and worship. Let us be filled with anticipation today knowing that you came, and Lord, knowing that you are, come, you are coming again. Lord, we look forward to that day, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.